Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning, New Life. I can assure you guys this southern accent is for real. All right, it is genuine, but it is good to be back with you guys. And man, if you can't worship, and oh my Lord, y'all have a band. I'm telling you, that worship is amazing, and the Spirit of God in this house is strong. Listen, it's always a joy to be here. I, I love your pastor. Pastor Brady Boyd is a mentor in my life. He's an apostolic elder at Open Door Church. And I get to tell this story. I can't remember if I told it last time I was here, but uh, seven years ago, I'm gonna celebrate my eighth year as a senior pastor at Open Door. Seven years ago, when I became senior pastor, I told my wife, I was like, you know, I want to be like Pastor Brady when I grow up. And you know what, I, I didn't know him. I mean, check this out, guys. This is literally like, this is so important for you to catch. I didn't even know the man. And then over these last seven years, God has knit our hearts together and he is one of the main voices in my life. And you have an amazing pastor who loves you. Uh, he does, and we're gonna give it up for him. But it's most evident in the team he builds and the quality of leaders that are around him. And I just want you to know, like Pastor Brady isn't one that needs the spotlight. He doesn't want it. I tell people all the time, he's the best leader that some people don't even know. And it's something that he values, that he is absolutely out to destroy the celebrity pastor model and his team is next level. Can you help put your hands together and thank your pastor and your leaders here? Amen, they're amazing people. <laughs> can, can we all be honest that there are worse places to be than Colorado Springs in June? I'm just saying, like I'm from the South guys, there's this thing we have called humidity. I know you don't even know it, it is literally like breathing in water. You're trying to take a breath and you're getting suffocated by water. We also have mosquitoes. Do y'all know what that is? Y'all probably call them mosquitoes. We call them mosquitoes, mosquitoes, whatever. They bite you and they're terrible, okay? So basically, I feel like I came to heaven and uh, I'm grateful to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we're gonna, we're gonna get into it today. And uh, really, the first part of this message is gonna cause you to think. Uh, I'm gonna teach you a little Southern saying though. If you've ever had anything or down South when something goes bad, when there's drama, when something's popping off, every once in a while we'll say this statement. Maybe you've heard it before, but we'll, we'll just say, fix it, Jesus. Has anybody ever said that before? You know, I think it needs to be on a t-shirt, right? Just fix it, Jesus. And, uh, and the title of today's message is Fix It, Jesus. I want you to look at your neighbor. We're gonna try it out real quick. Say, you need Jesus to fix it. Tell your neighbor that. <laughs> Look at your other neighbor and say, you the it that Jesus needs to fix. I, that's why you're here. I didn't look at you the first time because I was scared of you, but hey, that's it. Some of y'all laughing uncomfortably because it's actually true. You brought that person to church to try to get them straight. We'll see what happens. Funny thing is Jesus usually makes you straight in that process. Anyway, listen, here's the deal. What I love about scripture though is that we've all faced seasons and times that we needed Jesus to show up. Uh, what I love about the Bible is when we read the scriptures correctly and we really begin to pull back the layers of it, we can find ourselves in the story. One of the things that concerns me is, is many people read the Bible with the end in mind. What I mean by that is like we read the story of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, but we already know what's going to happen. So we don't really ever get into that moment of really what it 
felt like to be a disciple. In truth, none of the disciples saw the crucifixion coming. They never expected it. And in truth, it was a moment of great shame in all of their lives because everyone but John left Jesus. So yes, as his friend, they were excited. And we see that emotion in scripture that he got out of the grave. But there also had to be some wondering of where they stood in their relationship with this Christ when he did get out of the grave because they knew that they had failed him at his deepest moment and deepest need of moment. So today, as we dig into this story, this is after the resurrection. Peter has gone back to fishing. And Jesus systematically is going to the disciples and he is restoring them. But I also want to go a little bit further. He is also confronting them. And this is one of the things that we really have to know about this Jesus is that he, man, he, he goes after the deep places of our heart. I'm so grateful that I serve a God that is not into surface Christianity. But with that being, yes, I'm grateful for that. It also hurts sometimes because he refuses to allow the pockets of our life to just sit there and stink. The late pastor Jack Hayford, who has had an incredible impact on this house, has this amazing quote. He says, fear and pride are close brothers. I mean, fear and pride are close brothers. In fact, I would say one of the greatest ways to view a place of pride in your life is when fear pops to the surface because it means that we are more self-reliant than reliant on Jesus. And as a pastor today, I have those places still in my life. And so as we go down through this text, let's allow the Holy Spirit to deal in the deep places of our heart. John chapter 21 is when Jesus comes and he confronts Peter. We're gonna read verses 15 through 22. It says this, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon, son of Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Somebody say, love me. More than these. Peter had gone back to fishing. I don't, I don't know how much y'all fish here, but back south, we fish all the time, okay? So that's an honest question to some people in my church. Do you love Jesus more than fishing? <laughs> yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. All right, real quick. I don't have a lot of time to dissect this passage. But the Greek... Alphabet, the Greek words mean a lot more than English language. There's many more layers to it. And we know that. So Jesus is saying a different word for love than Peter is responding. Jesus is saying, do you agape me? Which is the highest form of love. It means that I'm going to love the individual no matter the cost to me. That's the way Jesus loves us. That's the way the Father loves us. In fact, we're called to love each other that way because the Spirit of God lives in us. It's interesting, Peter had received the Spirit. John chapter 20, Jesus had breathed the Holy Spirit into them. So the capacity to love Jesus the way Jesus was asking was in Peter. But Peter's response is, I phileo you, which means I dearly love you. It's not a bad love, but it is a brotherly love. Now, isn't it powerful that Jesus still gives Peter an assignment even though Peter's love is not the same as Jesus' love? So here already, Jesus is beginning to dig around in Peter's heart 
and deal with some of these things. I love my wife and I love donuts. Can I get a good amen? <laughs> right? Hopefully that love is two different things. Jesus is saying, hey, do you agape me? Peter's saying, I, I phileo you. Jesus still gives an assignment, feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? Same word. Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. He says, I phileo you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, let me ask you a question. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Oh, it got serious. Immediately by the third time, Peter, Jesus asked Peter this question. Peter absolutely knows what Jesus is doing. A third time. But listen to what he says. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Guess what Jesus does? He changes the word. He says, do you phileo me? Peter, it says, was hurt by the question that Jesus asked a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Can I just tell you something this morning, depending on what background you come from, we think about faith being in quantity, we think about faith being in quality. But here Jesus is making about none of those things, he is confronting Peter about honesty. Peter had been that guy who always wanted to get it right, who would stick his foot in his mouth. I know you have a friend like that and you would not be that friend, I know. But Peter was always the one that wanted to get it all right. Jesus, I will never deny you. And yet Jesus was like, yo, before the crow crows three times, the rooster crows three times, you're gonna deny me. And here Jesus comes and he deals with this in Peter and he says, Peter, our relationship can't go any further until we pull out of you this need to impress me. I want you to be honest with me. And yet the story doesn't even end there. It's a beautiful picture of God meeting Peter where he is at. And then it goes on to say, I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you like. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciple Jesus loved. All right, guys, new life. Who is the disciple that Jesus loved? John. Whose gospel are we reading? By the Holy Spirit. How cool would that have been if you were John writing that down and being like, I knew it. I knew I was God's favorite. I felt that in my heart the entire time. And thank you for confirming that in red letter. The one who leaned over to Jesus during the supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. That is the greatest mic drop moment in all the scripture right there. Three points for you this morning. The first two are observations about Peter. The first point is this. Peter was saying, fix it. Jesus was saying, face it. Peter was saying, fix it. Jesus was saying, face it. Listen to me, church. Many want a fix it Jesus, but we serve a face it God. 
This is the journey from immaturity to maturity and all believers. I would say, very simply, this is the process of discipleship. Till this point, they had served a God who had fixed it all. I mean, almost everyone was healed. Almost everyone was delivered. The moments they couldn't do something, Jesus was present and he did it. When they needed the food to feed the 5,000, Jesus said to them, you feed them. But it was him who took the fishes and the loaves in his hand and he blessed them and he broke them. And the disciples distributed one of the greatest miracles in all of scripture. This sounds totally crazy, but the disciples were crutched up on Jesus. They did not know what to do without him. Now listen, I need you to catch this because yes, Jesus Christ came to die for our sins that we may be saved. Can I get a good amen in this house? But if you think that's the only reason he came, then you miss the gospel. Jesus modeled for each and every one of us what it was capable of being a spirit-empowered believer. Jesus was born of the spirit conceived of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought Jesus into maturity. And then at age 30, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus like a dove. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. It came upon Jesus like a dove. And then Jesus began to do miracles. What Jesus was modeling for the disciples was not a life that was unobtainable. He was revealing to the disciples what it meant to be fully empowered by the Spirit of God. In this moment, they were crutched up by him. What he was trying to move them to was a spirit-empowered people that would take on the works of the enemy piece by piece and see the kingdom of God established in the earth. Come on, somebody. Oh, I'm going to preach this afternoon. Let's get it. Peter was fierce when he was in control. It's when something shifted that he didn't see coming that fear drove him to react. Peter's greatest fear was death. One of the things that bothers me about church today is that we have so many Christians that are literally paralyzed by the fear of death. There is no such thing as soul sleep church, but to be dead in this body is to be alive with Christ Jesus. Listen, one of the great hopes of the church and the people of God is that we are never absent from the presence of God, but just in a moment, we will see him face to face. So therefore there is always hope no matter what we face because the worst case scenario has been dealt with by Jesus Christ. Peter had a fear of death that drove him to control. And Jesus is bringing his amazing love into Peter's space. Y'all had this whole series on 1 John, beautiful series, but one of my favorite passages of scripture in 1 John is 1 John chapter four, verse 18. It says, perfect love cast out all fear. See, it's a beautiful passage of scripture, but we want that perfect love to come in a moment of just worship and just sweet solitude. But this is really a picture of perfect love because he's coming and he's looking Peter face in the face and he's saying, listen, Peter, my love is here, but what's in you right now is keeping you from following after me. It's a beautiful picture of love. Fear always shows us the place of independence that still exists in the inner places of our heart. Fear reveals where we haven't yet fully trusted daddy. 
Fear reveals the places that we have not allowed the love of God to penetrate those deep places in our soul. We all have them. We all have those things in us that when the enemy comes or something happens in those places, something shakes in us. And we have a tendency to revert to going back to fishing instead of continuing to follow Jesus. I love this quote by D. Elton Trueblood and it just echoes in my life so much. It says, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Faith is not belief without proof, but it's trust. And if you really pull apart the Greek, this word faith and trust goes so hand in hand in scripture. Where are the places that you and I, we struggle to trust that we have a good father who desires to take good care of us? That's what Jesus is after. The journey of all believers since the cross has been from a place of self-reliance to a surrendered heart. You know, I recently heard uh, some buckets and it was a great illustration for me visually. Three buckets that we have a tendency to put our faith in. And I would say that the disciples were very much in this place of putting their faith in these three buckets. The first bucket is the bucket of faith in religion. Like they all believed if they worked the process, then this is the results they would get. And how many of us have been following Jesus long enough that you can work the process and sometimes you don't get those results? Has anybody ever had something happen in their life that they did not see coming? Has anybody ever felt like they had heard a word from God, but it didn't come in the time frame that you thought it would come? Does this drive anybody else crazy but me? And so often we find ourselves that, ah, I mean, I've been really wrestling with this, is that so much of my faith can end up in that religious bucket, even though I'm a charismatic believer speaking in tongues, shouting, and I worship really loud and high, happy all the time. I can still find in certain places that I'm more faith-filled in the process of the religious cycle. Second bucket is faith out of desperation. Any everybody been in a mess <laughs> that you just said, Jesus, you get in this moment of desperation and you seek God out of desperation. The issue with putting our faith and coming to faith out of desperation is very few of very few times does it ever stick because once the desperation wears off, then where are we then? I would say the most mature bucket is the faith of surrender that we've surrendered in this moment. You know, one of the things that I think speaks volumes is in Hebrews, the great hall of faith, it literally says that they did not see the fullness of the promise. So here they are, patriarchs of faith, if you will, that never saw the fullness of what they were promised. They saw glimpses, but not the fullness. That means faith is not connected to the end result. Faith is connected to the one who holds the end result. Can I get a good amen in this house? That means that I have to anchor my faith in him because sometimes it's not going to go at the speed that I want it to go. Jesus didn't teach an avoidance gospel. He declared a gospel of facing the storm, stepping into the conflict, standing up to the religious and standing against culture. But most of all, he taught us to deal with the deep pockets that sit under the surface in all of our lives. Point number two, 
Peter wanted life to be fair. Jesus wanted Peter to experience the goodness of his grace. Peter wanted life to be fair. Jesus wanted Peter to experience the goodness of his grace. Now, listen, I think there's a lot of humor found in scripture. Anybody with me? Obviously, I'm the only one. I'm going to show you, okay? Because this is one of the funniest moments in all the Bible. All right? So Jesus is engaging Peter in this conversation. He's asking him, do you love me? Peter's saying, I love you. It's awkward, okay? Peter's not getting there. Jesus is continuing to deal with it. Then Jesus pulls out the craziest card in relationship ever. Peter's fear was death. Jesus says, you're going to die. Got really weird then. Then it goes to these verses. Verse number 19 through 21. It says, Jesus said this to him to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. So Peter, your worst case scenario is going to come true. I'm telling you straight up, follow me anyway. Peter goes, Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during the supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Okay, can y'all see this scene? Jesus says, Peter, you're gonna die for me, follow me. Peter doesn't even acknowledge what Jesus just said. He literally looks behind him and in essence says, that sucker better die too. There ain't no favorites in the kingdom. I know he's your favorite. He better die. If I'm going to die, he better die. Listen to me. Isn't that hilarious? Peter is more concerned with it being fair. If I got to suffer, they got to suffer too. I know that's not the popular thing to say in church, but I know that you've seen some people in the life that they're living and you're like, (laughs) Jesus, I got an issue with this. Right? Everybody shows their highlight reel in life, not real life. But I want you to hear me. There's a reality to this that is powerful. One of the greatest enemies of what God desires to do in your life is your comparison to what he is doing in someone else's. One of the greatest enemies of what God wants to do in your life is when you start comparing your life to others. The enemy of comparison will always rob us of our joy and freedom to be who God authored and designed us to be. It's one of the traps that we constantly fall into. Now this is tweetable, but I don't mean it that way. But I need you to catch this. Listen, I am graced for my race. I'm not graced for your race. I can get jealous of your ways if I'm not careful. Why? Because you live in Colorado Springs. I live in Eastern North Carolina. I would prefer this instead of where I'm from. It's 100 degrees with 90% humidity. Y'all don't even know what humidity is. But I'm graced for the race that God has called me to. And when I run my race, I experience his grace. I'm convinced today that most Christians only experience God's mercy. They don't actually ever experience his grace. We're so many times getting off track and then getting on track and we're just, God help me, God help me, God help me, God help me, God help me. And thank God for his mercy. 
But when I begin to embrace the race that he has called me to and put on blinders to what is going on, not blinders so I'm not empathetic, but I'm talking about blinders of comparison. So I stop comparing somebody else's race to my race and I just get in infatuated with what God has called me to do in the race that he has laid in front of me. So I don't care how hard it is. I don't care how many mountains I got to climb, how many valleys of the shadow of death I've got to walk through, but I'm going to follow after Jesus because when I follow after Jesus, he works it all out in the end. Come on, somebody. Like that's the power of running the race that God has set before you. Paul spoke to this in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away and each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses. Who says that? When's the last time you introduced yourself to somebody and said, and I want you to know about my weakness? So that the power of Christ works through me. So that's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. How powerful it is it that one of the great apostles started looking at his weakness as his greatest strength. In a world that we promote how strong we are. Paul was saying, my greatest strength is actually my weakness because it's where I need his power and it's where his power is most evident in my life. Grace is not the absence of weaknesses. It's the presence of his strength. It's not the absence of fearful thoughts. It's the ability and refusal to allow them to influence our actions. Unchecked fear produces panic and in turn produces exhaustion. Faith and trust that is allowed to grow produces great peace and rest. If the root of fear is pride, then the root of God-honoring trust is grace. His grace in our life. Last point today Grace is the work of the Holy Spirit. Grace is the work of the Holy Spirit. When you look at Jesus' life and how he lived his life before his disciples, my belief is that he was modeling for them what it meant to be full of the Holy Spirit and how valuable the Holy Spirit is in the believer's life. Depending on what denomination you grew up in, depending on what church background you grew up in, we have a tendency to talk about grace and not really know what it is. We sing about it. Whole denominations have been built on beliefs about it. But they don't really know what, what is this. And some, some act like it's like the fourth part of the Trinity. But listen to me, grace is not just something to experience, it is a person to experience and it is the person of the Holy Spirit. Grace is the work of the Holy Spirit. That word work is important because work, not to get too deep on you, but 
work, the definition of work is applying force to an object that causes that object to move. It's like the energy that applies force to an object that moves that object. But there are many Christians today that are exhausted because they're burning through energy, but it's not moving the object. And it's because we've actually not linked up with the Holy Spirit. We're still trying to do this Christian walk in our own faith, in our own life, in our own ability. In this moment, Jesus was coming to Peter and he's saying, hey, if we're gonna continue on, it's gonna have to go a lot different now. You're gonna have to know that the whole reason I came was for you to receive the Holy Spirit. Matthew 11, it's a beautiful passage of scripture. Eugene Peterson's the message version. I love his translation. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. How many of y'all are planning for a Sunday nap, a most holy nap? He says, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You know, it's a passage of scripture that says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. When I was growing up, I was like, what is that? Is that an egg yoke? It's not an egg yoke. But the rabbis of that day would have teachings and that was called their yoke. And the yoke is what they would place on oxen to get these two powerful animals or three or four, whatever the number, to work together. Do you think Jesus had a bat phone to God the Father? No, he had the Holy Spirit. Jesus is teaching us that the yoke of the believer is the Holy Spirit in unity with God. He brings us into unity. You know, it's such a powerful thing to say, you know what? Have I really yoked up with the Holy Spirit? Or am I still trying to accomplish this life on my own? You know, I feel like the Holy Spirit really told me to speak this message in this season because I needed to be reminded. I'm getting ready to enter in my eighth year of senior pastoring and I have two sons. I have a 14 year old and I have an eight year old. My wife and I looked at each other one time and she got pregnant. We looked at each other a lot for the second one and she didn't get pregnant for a long time, okay? You with me? So my eight year old, my 14 year old is bigger than I am and eat me out of house and home. My eight year old, we're praying he gets saved soon, right? I'm just kidding. He's saved, but he's spicy with a side of sriracha, okay? Um, but my wife received a prophetic word that we were gonna have David. And that prophetic word came at the very last moment. And so we know that he's a promise of God, like all kids. Pregnancy was great. Birthing was great, like seamless. Everything was great. Go home. My wife takes a nap. How many mamas in the room know that after a newborn, you need a nap? She laid down, went to sleep, woke up, and she could not hear out of her right side. Completely deaf. We thought it was just an ear infection. 
We go on just a few more days and I'm on the way to a conference and she starts calling me and she's like, hey, David's acting weird. He's not eating, something's wrong. And I'm like, feed that baby, it's fine, he's fine. She's like, no, mama's intuition says something's wrong. She takes him to the doctor, the nurse comes in, puts the that thing up to his heart, right? And she, and she couldn't count his heart rate. It was going over 300 beats. Like literally, the nurse throws the thing down in panic. She's scared to death. She goes and gets the doctor. That's a bad day. Doctor comes in, rushes him to the hospital, ends up that he has SVT, which is not uncommon. But to new parents, it was scary. And they were like, he could go back into it anytime. He had been in that heart rate for over eight hours. Go to the hospitals, they're trying to figure it all out. He gets sick, long stay, almost dies. It, it's, it's, it was terrible. We're at the pediatrician just a few days later, you know, checking up on David, and he's the best doctor I know. And I literally look at him after looking at David. And I say, look at my wife's ear because something's wrong and we feel like something's wrong. She's seen some, you know, 24 hour docs or whatever. And they're saying that it's just an um, allergies or whatever, ear infection. And he looked at the ear and I'll never forget it. He said, Aaron, something is wrong. She has had a stroke in her inner ear and that hearing is never coming back. So here I have a wife who's scared to death for her kid. David required medicine three times a day, every eight hours to keep his heart rate from getting out of, out of rhythm. I got a newborn who we don't know what's going to happen with him. A few months later, he ends up getting RSV and about dying in another extended stay. Like it was so scary, about died. I remember the nurse sitting at the door, watching him breathe through the night. And on the midst of all of this, my daddy calls. And he's like, son, I've really been praying and seeking God. And it's, we think it's time for you to take the church. Now, <laughs> I was nicer than my wife was. Let me just say it that way, okay? I can't even tell you what she said. It's not appropriate in church. My dad was gracious. He's like, you know what? I get it. Y'all just pray. And I get it. I was doing a funeral. I was at the cemetery. I just gotten done and I'd stepped off to the side because my mentor called me and he's one of those calls that you take. And I just answered the phone and I said, Hey man, he said, Hey Aaron, how are you doing? And I said, I'm not doing good. My wife, she's broken. Like she's grieving. I don't know if she's ever going to come back. I mean, I don't know if she's ever going to recover. I got a kid who I think is going to die at any moment. Where is God in this? All I've tried to do is be obedient. All we've tried to do is do the right thing. He said, I know. He said, I was praying for you this morning and I had a word, do you wanna hear it? And I was like, no, I really don't wanna hear it. <laughs> you know, there's some people that you wanna hear the words from and then there's some that you're like, no, I don't really wanna hear this one. He said, no, you need to hear this. And I said, all right, what is it? I said, God, it better be a good one. He said, Aaron, there's a storm that's raging around you and you want God to fix it. You're trying to get around the storm. You're trying to find a way out of the storm. 
And he said, but this morning when I was praying for you, God said, Aaron, it is time for you to turn and face the storm because God is in the storm and God wants to reveal something about his nature and his character in this moment in your life that you have never seen before. You know what I wanted to say is, that's the stupidest thing I have ever heard. But I don't know how to explain it, but in that moment I turned, I mean, my spirit turned. I took a deep breath and I said, God, okay, if this is you, then I'll face it. I went home and my wife had my little baby on her lap and I washed my hands at the sink. And she looked at me and she said, Aaron, I was praying today and the Holy Spirit told me that it is time to go do what God has called us to do in spite of what's happening and to not allow the enemy or anything else to steal what God has spoken over our lives. Call your daddy and tell him we will take this church and we will do everything that God has spoken over our lives, over our family, and over our community. I didn't get a chance to say this first service. Sorry. But when I became senior pastor of the church, just a few months later, my dad looked at me and he said, he said, Aaron, you have been through the fire, you and Lauren. And that process was God preparing you for what's ahead so that you have an anchor in your life to know that no matter what happens, he will not fail you and he will not forsake you. I look back at going through COVID, going through elections, going through different things. And I have rested on that fact that in the midst of a storm, God said, Aaron, stop trying to run. I'm going to help you face it. Listen to me, church. I don't know what storm you're in. I don't know what's going on in your life. But what I can tell you is that we serve a God who is not in the business of fixing it, but he empowers you so that you can face it. What's in you as a believer is more than what you could ever imagine. In this moment, know that what I learned in the process was not that following Jesus alleviates hard things. It means we can face hard things and still prevail. Can I get a good amen in this house? Listen, why don't you bow your heads this morning? And I wanna minister just a few things. I know I've just gone a few minutes over, but here's, here, here's some things that I felt like. So bow your head, close your eyes. I'm not gonna have you come up front, but I am gonna have you stand. These are the three things. Some of you are facing a storm. You're in it and you knew as minute I started talking about it, that God was saying, it's time to face it. That this isn't something he's gonna fix. This is time to face. Some of you are dealing with a spirit of fear, areas of your life that you are consistently being attacked in fear. I believe that God, listen, you don't overcome fear with faith. You overcome fear with his perfect love. 
And so today, if you're facing fear, and the last one is some of you are contending for a prophetic word. God has spoken a prophetic word over your life. And I'm telling you, God sent me to new life this weekend to confirm to you that do not give up that word that you believe God spoke. The enemy's trying to steal it from you. Whatever storm you're in is trying to take it from you, but you hold on to what God has spoken. So if you're dealing with a storm, you're facing fear, or you're contending for a prophetic word, I want you to stand to your feet right now. Right now, we're gonna pray over you because I believe the Holy Spirit is here, that he wants to minister to the deep places of your heart. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. I want you to get in a posture of receiving this morning. Just lift your hands. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you that you love us enough to confront us. Thank you that you love us enough to not leave us in this place, but to come and confront us. And God, I pray for those today that are facing a storm. Lord, I pray that a mighty man and a mighty woman would rise up within the inside of them, that they would know that they are full of the Holy Spirit, that God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in them and will quicken their mortal body. That, Father, there is no storm. That, Father, you can't speak to. I'm reminded of the words of that song. Sometimes he calms the storm, but other times he calms the child. Today, Lord, I pray peace over them in the mighty name of Jesus. Peace is not a feeling. Peace is also a person. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, all over this place, Lord God, I pray that they would be filled afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit. God, I speak against fear, the spirit of fear in the mighty name of Jesus. God, I'm grateful today that your perfect love comes to those places that nobody else knows, that nobody else sees. God, I pray that, Father, that fear would be driven out by the love of a daddy who loves his children, who desires his children. God, you're a good father who takes good care of your children. We can trust you even in times of pain. And God, I pray that every word you have spoken, your Bible, Lord, your word says that your word will not return void. So God, every prophetic word, every word for a child, every word for a family, every word over a life, God, every word for a new season, God, we will hold on to your word because your word never fails. And God, we might not see it the way we want to see it, but we can trust that however you bring it forth will be for our good and for your glory. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you lift up a big praise today, church? Why don't you stand to your feet? I'm going to invite those who help us distribute communion to come forward. Let's worship God and give him our best praise.